tension in the days. This tension in the days. Tension in the days. like to start this stream on a happy note but i just spent 20 minutes talking and forgot to hit record so 20 minutes of this episode is somewhere out there in the ether uh sorry but uh start over i guess welcome back it's been a little while. Uh, we are, of course, covering Everywhere Present by Father Stephen Freeman. Uh, we have, we are on chapter nine, The Literal Truth, talking a little bit about 
icons, a little bit about the interpretation of scripture, and a little bit about how Christ reveals the truth. We have two chapters remaining after this chapter, and I believe I'm going to do them as one episode of this uh, because they're very short. So we'll just go ahead and get those done and, and, uh, and wrap everywhere present. I have found that this book was incredibly insightful. Uh, just a really good, a really good little primer, 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 primer on uh, getting you to think a little more critically about the faith and what believing in God requires. So um, before we go ahead and jump in, that intro, I've been thinking like, I need an intro, you know, what can I do for an introduction? And uh, I thought, you know what? I'm a musician. I write music. I produce music. I put out music. It's available everywhere. Uh, let's just shamelessly plug my own music. So that was a song called Tension in the Dance. And I wrote that uh, during a four-day intensive at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology over a conference on childhood sexual abuse not specifically sexual abuse but just childhood trauma and how it affects the body in adulthood uh orchestrated and produced by the allender center and dan allender and of course after his famous uh book the wounded heart which i definitely recommend uh I actually, for a time, a little side note, the reason I was there at all was because I was actually going to be a student at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology and um, ended up going a different direction. Uh, but I was, my plan was to do uh, counseling therapy. And I'd gotten into psychoanalytic literature, Christian and non-Christian and academic and pop level, uh, very interested in it, very, very much, uh, very interested. Uh, things got different for me, and I ended up doing a different direction. Uh, but for four days, I was there. I was listening to stories of people. Uh, I was sharing my own stories with people. And uh, on one day, on one occasion, after hearing a story of a woman's uh, struggle with dealing uh, with childhood sexual trauma that she had endured, dealing with unavoidable feelings of guilt, uh, not necessarily about um, giving a false sense of consent in any way, though that can sometimes be the case, but rather just feeling guilty that she was not more guarded. Uh, looking back, you know, hindsight being 2020, it's often, I mean, it's, it, how can a child be expected to have their guard up 
against an adult who's sec- going to sexually abuse them. It's an impossibility. But her and she knew that, but her whole thing was this terrible tension of of on the one hand knowing I was wronged and to unavoidably uh feeling some amount of guilt for some part of the event. And so I wrote this poem called Tension in the Dance and then I built a song around it. So that's what that that's what that is. Uh I guess I'm going to just do my songs as intros from now on. We'll just see you know share them sharing them with you. I put a lot of work into it. A lot of work went into Freshwater Bay in particular. And so I I always like sharing that with people and getting their input on what I've made. So there you go. Uh, after we finish this book, back to back to back to the what's at hand here. After we finish this book, um, with one more episode to go, as I said, we are going to be doing uh, Charles Galton Darwin's The Next Million Years. And I just want to briefly say that I know that might not be everyone's cup of tea that might not interest everybody. And that's okay. Uh, But for where I am at the moment, for what is, uh, you know, really tugging at my thoughts and feelings right now in our present day uh, is very much about uh, what is, I think, driving my pursuit to read things like this, read things like uh, Nihilism by Father Seraphim Rose. I'm trying to dig beneath the thin veneer of American Christianity uh, and try to find something to anchor myself to. What is it in Christian thought and tradition and theology that can anchor a person through tumultuous times. And I don't just mean, I think we tend to think uh, tumultuous times means persecution in the physical sense or the, you know, the fear that we won't be able to go to church, we won't this or that. But what I mean specifically is when the worldview of the masses is no longer consistent with what is required to be the worldview of a Christian, uh, of someone who believes that God revealed his, revealed himself fully in Jesus Christ and what that means for the world now. In order to help myself not only understand what it is that is anchoring me to the ground, I feel like it's important for me to to truly understand the fundamental uh, properties of what has driven our modern atheist materialist worldview and the leaders who promulgated such a worldview. So 
that might interest all of you. I don't know. Uh, we've got, I just looked, we have 59 subscribers. That's, that's pretty awesome. So uh, keep sharing this. And uh, like I said, um, I'm, I, well, I am going to get back to live streaming this because I do want to have a real dialogue as it's going on. Uh, I've, it, eventually we'll get there, but, um, keep sharing it. I'd love to, you know, keep building this community to keep the discussion going, uh, for my sake and for the sake of anyone else who's thinking and feeling the same things that I, that I am. And, uh, I, I, uh, I want to be well-equipped to be able to see through the facade of, the dominant culture and the worldview that controls most people here in America. I want to be able to see through it for what it is. And so I'm going to be reading Charles Galton Darwin's The Next Million Years to understand what he thinks the future is, what he thinks about humanity, and what he thinks is our greatest problem and what to do about that problem. And so, uh, as I mentioned, I know that might not be everybody's cup of tea. That might not be something you're particularly interested in, and that is totally okay. And in order not to, in order to avoid losing you all together, uh, I will be doing some episodes in between those chapters on more re more relevant information with regard to what I'm reading in in Christianity, what I'm thinking about conversations I've had recently, or uh, even interview podcast with a guest and, and talking about some of these things. So I plan to try to keep the ball rolling, but that is what is next on the list. So let us dive in. Icons do with color what scripture does with words. He says, uh, which is, a, I think, a really helpful thing to hear from people who did not grow up in a tradition of Christianity that venerates icons. Uh, there's a very specific theological move happening with icons that is mirroring in a different artistic way what the scriptures do with words so what icons do with an image with a with a with a portrait i guess scripture does with words that's the goal anyway uh so we're talking about the same story uh the same revelation different medium he notes here on page 78 uh he kind of just jumps right into this problem of literalism uh, that is both part of the secular space and the christian fundamentalist space he says the modern world has a distinctly historical cast the period in which we live is seen both as a product of and as a reaction to all that has come before it. 
Just as we tend to see the world as a series of causes and effects, so we see history as describable as a series of causes and effects. Secularism can grant the existence of God on a theoretical level and make room for people who hold such an existence within their set of beliefs, but the world must be understood to work in a fashion that may be comprehended without the reference to God. Cause and effect, he says, and our ability to know, understand, and manage cause and effect are critical in this worldview. This is what leaves us free in the secular space. Uh, and then he goes to critique Christian fundamentalism kind of in, with the same veracity with the same argument basically too that only what is true is what is historical as it is portrayed and as it can be measured so it's like uh you know the the how to say You're not going to believe this, but I locked myself out of my office. I had to run out for a second and pause this video, and now I have to come through the window. I don't know how that happened. What the heck? What kind of video, what kind of stream is this, dude? Oh, God. What? You've never seen? You've never seen this before. Guaranteed, you've never seen this on a stream before. Ow, this window's small. Let me get things up right. Ah, okay. Whoa, dude. All right. Back. What? Okay, now I have to, unfortunately, go back and shut the door. I will be right back. back Woo. welcome to spiritual thoughts what a trip dude okay everything's good gosh i don't know how that happened i shut the door and it locked so but we're here. I actually, I, I, uh, I don't even know where we are. So sorry, I had to jump up, go take care of something here at the church. And we're back, had to crawl through the window, but it's all good. We're here we go. Just keeping the stream, just keeping the video lively. You know, you're not going to fall asleep on this one. All 
Oh yeah, I was talking about he critiquing fundamentalism and this idea of historicity and the truth lies in some kind of a historical account. Oh, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure. Uh, Zevia cream soda is phenomenal. Highly recommended. No sugar. You know, as I get older, gotta gotta be a little more conscious of your sugar intake. No calories, no sugar, naturally sweetened. Usually these suck. Usually like the sugar-free stuff, it sucks. This one is good. Cream soda. Not a sponsor. Um, let's just jump to the part that I think is most interesting. Uh, he goes on to talk about how Jesus, particularly the Pascha of Christ, Passover of Christ, uh, and Christ is risen. Easter just passed. Christ is risen. Uh, God bless all of you. The, uh, the Pascha reveals the full meaning of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ reveals the full meaning of the Old Testament. This is what is, uh, I'm, it's hard to even say I'm starting to read it that way. I'm, I am immersing myself in the way the fathers read the Old Testament this way in a way that I hadn't before. And here's what he says that is just so incredible. The Pascha of Christ is the Passover of Christ. The Passover of the Jews is a story that must begin with their slavery in Egypt, the calling of Moses, his confrontation with Pharaoh, the plagues, culminating in the night of Passover itself when Israel is passed over by the angel of death, and the night when Israel passes through the Red Sea on dry land, and Pharaoh and his army are destroyed. All of this is Israel's Passover. Christ's Passover, his Pascha, includes the entire economy of our salvation. His incarnation and birth from the Virgin Mary, his baptism and ministry, his betrayal and arrest, his mocking and scourging and crucifixion, and his burial and resurrection on the third day, and in subsequent understanding, his destruction of sin and death by his death and resurrection. Uh, he re There's this section here that is incredibly good in Against the Heresies by, I think it's Ignatius, right? St. Ignatius? Uh, Irenaeus. St. Irenaeus, uh, who was a disciple of John, I think, uh, I think. Here's what it says. If anyone reads the scriptures, that is the Old Testament, in this way, he will find in them the word concerning Christ and a foreshadowing of the new calling. For Christ is the treasure which was hidden in the field, that is, in this world. For the field is the world, a treasure hidden in the scriptures. For he was in indicated by means of types and parables, which could not be understood by men prior to the consummation of those things which had been predicted, that is, the advent of Christ. And for this reason, when at the present time the law is read to the Jews, it is like a fable, for they do not possess the explanation or the key, the exegesis 
of all things which pertain to the human advent of the Son of God. But when it is read by Christians, it is a treasure hid in a field, but brought to light by the cross of Christ. End quote. He goes on to say in, on page 82, the Pascha of Christ is to be found in the Old Testament by means of types and parables, which could not be understood by men prior to the consummation of those things which had been predicted. The Pascha of Christ and its unique understanding given to the apostolic church was the primary icon or type and parable by which the Old Testament scriptures were to be understood. And this is where the concept, which I had heard before, but hadn't totally, I think, grasped till recently, is that Jesus is the greater Moses. He is the fulfillment of the prophet Jonah. He is the greater Elijah. He is the archetype of all of the figures, and his life is the archetype, the archetypal narrative of all of the stories. He is the fulfillment of the prophetic vision of all of the poetry of all of Israel's scriptures. That is the Christian claim. And so he goes into Jonah and kind of contrasts how both hard materialism, obviously, is going to look at the story of Jonah as just like a, a metaphorical story about how disobeying God will cause you great distress, I suppose. Uh, the fundamentalist interpretation of Jonah is going to make a priority out of the historicity of Jonah, which again, I don't know. I think the historicity of Jonah might still be important, uh, but, but it kind of stops there. The fuller Christian tradition is going to see Jonah as only fully revealed with the revelation of Christ. And this is where I want to direct you to uh, direct you to something that is very helpful, I think. Uh, and I have had quite a journey in my interpretive journey, uh, going from hardcore Calvinist sort of dogmatic refor reformed, interpretations and to uh more of a uh, prioritizing the jewish interpretation of of the hebrew bible in school and then now kind of coming to the early church father's interpretation of the bible to inform what i think how, how to derive the meaning um but if you go to the bibleproject.com and go to uh classroom beta in the main tab you can come down here and take totally legit graduate level courses on all of these books of the Bible. Uh, everything from Genesis, it's, they continue to add. Uh, but this one, the book of Jonah is 13 hours long. It's, it's full of lectures. 
it's broken down really well. It's very, it's fun. Um, but it's incredibly illustrative of the literary design of the book of Jonah, the ways Jonah itself is riffing on the stories of Israel that have come before it. And uh, it's just a really good look at the Jewish interpretive uh, tradition behind the book of Jonah, which I, again, I still think is valuable. Uh, but of course, Jonah, just like I think Dr. F or, uh, Father Stephen Freeman would suggest, only finds its revelation. It only finds that the mystery of Jonah is only revealed in the life of the Son of God. And um, there are some interesting things that happen in the book of Jonah that are, uh, that are uh, I mean, so, so fascinating. The one is in the very beginning, obviously the story of Jonah is Jonah is a, a prophet. He is, he is commanded by Yahweh to go to Nineveh to preach to them, to turn from their wickedness. And Jonah goes as far away, he goes to Tar he goes toward Tarshish, which is the opposite direction of Nineveh. So in even in that, even in that part of the story, it is a literary device to say he's he is not only not going to Nineveh, he's going as far away from Nineveh as he possibly can. And he gets on a boat with some pagan sailors, and storms come and they freak out. They completely freak out. And upon the storms happening, Jonah, who still does not want to go to Nineveh, just says, throw me overboard. He's like, I'm a prophet of Yahweh. And they get even more scared. And they're like, what should we do to appease your God? None of the other gods are responding. We can't get this thing to stop. We're all going to die. Jonah says, just throw me overboard. Um. Which is interesting because you, you might take this as some have take this as like a self-sacrificial thing, but uh, as Tim Mackey will kind of put it, uh, it seems more to be uh, a selfish request. He's not praying to God to save. He's just get me out of here and God will maybe stop it, but I'm not going to Nineveh kind of a, a deal. And what you have is the prophet of God is in direct disobedience to what God has called him to do. And he's thrown overboard, but before he even does that, the sailors are like, don't, we don't want to do that. We don't want innocent blood on our hands. And so J Jonah convinced him to do it anyway. And it is the sailors, the pagan sailors, who actually call out for forgiveness from Yahweh, not Jonah, the prophet. And he goes down into the waters, and as he's descending, he says the, this prayer that Father Stephen Freeman quotes here, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surround me. And your billows and your waves pass over me. Then I said, 
I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The waters surround me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. He says here, I'm going to read a a long passage here from Stephen Freeman, but it's going to really pull this together. None of this seems clear until Christ's Pascha has occurred and his disciples have been instructed in its shape, form, and meaning. Indeed, we do well to remember that the Gospels are written after Pascha and are themselves utterly shaped by this event. The story of Christ's baptism is a very rich source of classical Christian reflection. Icons of this event carry layers of reference and meaning, portraying within one single icon whose chapters of biblical material and a wealth of theological understanding. In the fullest portrayal of the icon, Christ stands in the midst of the Jordan with two board-like objects beneath his feet and snakes appearing around the edges of the boards. St. John the Baptist stands on one shore, angels on the other. A tree with an axe embedded in it appears in one corner. The entire scene is set at a stylized river with towering walls framing the scene, often with a background of black. It is a very striking icon and unintelligible apart from the Pascha of Christ. In the Pascha reading of the icon, the Jordan River is the very edge of Hades, death, and hell. or in other words, the waters of the Red Sea, or in Jonah's case, the waters of the Great Sea that he is now falling to the depths. It is a very striking icon and unintelligible apart from the Pascha of Christ. In the Pascha reading of the icon, the Jordan River is the very edge of Hades, death, and hell. The towering walls framing the icon, often accompanied by a background of black, artistically echo the icon of Christ's descent into Hades. Thus, his baptism is a foreshadowing of the descent and his defeat into sin and death. The serpents who appear at the edges of the board-like objects are the demons of hell. The boards, the very gates of Hades themselves, an image that echoes Psalm 74, 13, in which God quote, crushes the heads of the dragon in the waters. Thus, the baptism of Christ iconically foreshadows the whole of his Pascha. By the same token, the whole of our salvation is summed up in this biblical image. And he quotes Romans 6, 3 through 11. With the meager narrative of the baptism of Christ in the Gospels on a literal level, the event can be understood a little more than the inauguration of Christ's ministry. But the icons of the event point to a far deeper understanding, an understanding that is reflected in Romans 6. Our baptism is a union with Christ's crucifixion and death, crucifixion and resurrection. Christ's baptism in the Jordan is Christ's Pascha, at least in a proleptic or foreshadowing sense so going back to jonah in the 
in the icon, as he said, in Christ, let's look at Christ's baptism and then we'll reflect on Jonah. He's baptized in the Jordan River, symbolizing his Pascha, his, and which is a reference to the Exodus from Egypt, passing through the Red Sea specifically into, into salvation, right? Their salvation is on the other side of the Red Sea, where evil is destroyed. Passing through the Jordan River um, to go into the promised land at the end of Deuteronomy, going into Joshua, is a symbol of, is a, is a prophetic image of baptism, also passing through the waters into their salvation. Jesus' baptism in the Jordan is his passing through the waters into the salvation of the world, where the angels stand on the other side of the bank in the icon that he's describing. Jonah passes through the waters and is spat out by the fish onto dry land into the into in the story to affect the salvation of the wicked city and so jesus in him becoming a greater jonah passes through the waters as jonah did into the redemption of the wicked world and just the same way that the story itself in the scriptures reveals this, icons too reveal this just in a different way, uh, not in an inferior way or in a, a, a less prophetic way, just another way. And uh, this is a powerful reflection on how these stories are actually once again revealed in the life of christ how early church reflecting on these old testament texts are seeing just how jesus is fulfilling all of the stories he is the greater type of all of the stories and this is something that is incredibly, um, it's amazing when you, when, you, when you can understand the stories on their own. Uh, this is where I'm saying, like going to this classroom beta and, and taking this class, for instance, on Jonah, uh, you're really getting the Jewish uh, interpretation of these stories. You're really understanding the background and the, the literary patterns in the story, the way the Hebrew uses its, its own language to highlight particular events in the story to make certain um, points, not just by the words themselves, but in their structure. Uh, you see all of this and you get this big full picture of Jonah, right? And then you come to the stories of Christ. And in those stories, you go back to Jonah 
just like you go back to the Exodus, just like you go back to Israel entering the promised land, you go back to these stories to realize, oh, this is just a retelling in a fuller, more revealed way, exactly what uh, has been being foreshadowed this entire time. And it is we who sit in Nineveh, and it is Christ who passes through the waters in order to deliver us the message of salvation, the gospel, that he has thrown down the wicked powers and that he has made a way for us. And just like Noah passes through the waters in the ark, the Lord builds his ark in the church. And in the church, we find our salvation with our great high priest and prophet and King Noah, the, the Jesus, the fulfillment of Noah, leads us into he himself has built this for us. And uh, I mentioned before this up and down imagery that's all throughout the Bible, up being looking towards what is greater, looking towards God, and down being looking towards um, beneath us to the chaos waters. Uh, it is God who passes through all dimensions of existence down to the pit into Hades where chaos is manifested. And he bursts for, forth from that into new life, fully glorified, revealing that he is in fact the word and eternally begotten power and son of God. And uh, following him reveals the meaning of life and gives us our salvation into the future. It's a really good, really good uh, chapter. Uh, it causes me to take more time looking at icons, analyzing them, seeing them uh, in a fresh way. And I hope you enjoyed that chapter too. If you're reading it along with me, it's a powerful chapter. Uh, thank you for com coming in, tuning in. Sorry for the absolute chaos that this stream was, uh, but I will see you next time.